Welcome to On Scripps Biblical World, a podcast exploring the history, archaeology, geography, and cultures of the Bible. Visit us at onscriptstudy biblicalworld. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Biblical World Podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. We hope that you're doing well. Thanks for listening to and supporting this podcast. If you'd like to give to the Biblical World Podcast, you can do so by going to onscript.study forward slash donate and find information there. If you aren't able to do that, that's totally fine, Uh, but we'd appreciate if you could give us a rating, a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. If you just take a few seconds to do that, we'd really appreciate that because it helps people find the podcast and and hear about it. So we're excited about the content here. Uh, we, we're passionate about history, culture, archaeology, backgrounds of the Bible, and hope you enjoy this, and we'd appreciate that help toward that end. So enjoy this episode. Thanks for listening. Welcome back. Biblical World listeners, I'm Kyle Keimer. I'm joined today by my co-host, Chris McKinney. Chris, how are you doing today? Kyle, doing well. How are you? I couldn't be better. I'm pretty excited about today's chat that we have. We have a, a pretty awesome guest, uh, Shlomit Bakar, who is a senior lecturer at Haifa University in the Department of Archaeology and Maritime Civilizations. And we're going to be speaking about her recent book, which just came out this past year, called Political Change and Material Culture in Middle to Late Bronze Age Canaan. And this actually... I, I love this book. This is this is such a great study and has so many interesting topics. Hopefully we have time to get into everything today. So Shlomit, it is a pleasure to have you here. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure to be here as well. Well, let's start a little bit here. Um, so you have been working at Hatsor. Give us a little bit of your, your connection because Hatsor is going to be featured heavily in the podcast today. It's, it's one of the major parts of your, your book. Um, even though we, you look at the broader world of the, the Middle and Late Bronze Age and particularly looking at the way the material culture changes from the Middle Bronze Age to the Late Bronze Age and why it changes. Is it connected to political change? And you, you really do a lot of systematic uh, analysis to, I think, really illuminate this transition. And these, these are really big questions that not only are relevant for the transition from the Middle to Late Bronze Age, but any of these archaeological periods that we have, because obviously these are all modern terms that we've created and tried to implement over the material, but they're not perfect. And if there's anything that we've learned over the last say 120 years of doing archaeology is that they change. These terms change. We have to refine what they mean. We have to refine how the archaeology connects to the terminology, how that connects to the historical sources. And so I think in this regard, your book is a, a really excellent addition to this this larger conversation. So with, with that said, can you just give us a little introduction to your connection to Hatsor so that um, you know, we can kind of delve into the material culture there because you you are the expert at Hatsor, basically. Uh, thank you very much. Um, so I've been working at Hatsor since 2007. I started as a, an assistant uh, to Sharon Zuckerman, who was the area supervisor and the co-director of the excavation. Uh, she co-directed the excavation together with Amnon Bentor. Um, and then I became an area supervisor. And after Sharon passed away uh, at the end of uh, 2014, I became co-director of the excavation together with Amnon Bento. And now I'm going to start uh, a new project in the lower city of Chatzol, but we can talk about this later. So this is my uh, connection to Chatzol. Excellent. Yeah, and we'll we'll definitely talk about this new project because it's it's exciting. And Chris and I already we already have the scoop on it a little bit, but we want to make sure that the listeners get a chance to hear about it as well. Chris, is there anything you want to jump in with right now before we we start firing questions? Yeah, I was just going to give us some some background uh, to this this project of Hatsor, and of course, Old Testament readers, Hebrew Bible readers, will be well aware that Hatsor is a quite an important city that we encounter in the Bible, especially in the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 11, and we also read about it in Judges chapter 4 and 5, and of course in 1 Kings 9. And I would say it's uh, one of the most—I always like to talk about these key important cities 
in Israel as the not the who's who, but the where's where. And Hatzor is like at the top of the heap, uh, right in competition all the time with uh, with Megiddo. And I've always loved going to Hatzor. Uh, Kyle and I have been asked in the past, what's your favorite site? And we debate, is it Dan or is it Hatzor? And so I always like to say it's Hatzor, but Dan's a close, a close second and Megiddo's in there too. Um, but it's such a, a fascinating site, not only because of its biblical connections to the story of Joshua conquering the head of those Canaanite kingdoms and all the interesting details that we have there, but because of its long uh, archaeological excavation history that goes really back to the beginning of the state of Israel with Yigal Yadin and myself uh, studying with uh, Gabriel Barkai at Jerusalem University College. I always felt like I was one step removed uh, from the excavations uh, that was really the beginning of this entire process that we see now uh, really being a world leader uh, in, in Israel with the with the excavations there. And so I'm really excited uh, to have Shlomit here to tell us about uh, her her work there over many years, uh, and then also her, her recent work there. So I, I'm really excited to hear what you have to say, Shlomit. So I just want to say something about, you You mentioned Igael Yadin, so I want to say a little bit about that. So yeah, Chatzor was, um, um, I think, one of his first projects um, in Israel, um, and it was you also said that Yadin was like a founding father of Israeli archaeology and Chatzel was like a school for Israeli archaeologists. All of the big names that we know, we mentioned Amnon Bentor, um, we can also mention uh, Amichai Mazar, Pirchi Abek, Ruta Miran, um, we call her book the Bible, you know, it's the Bible for archaeologists. So all of these people, um, Trudy Dotan, Moshe Dotan, they all excavated at Chatzor. They learned how to excavate. And even uh, till today, um, some of the methods that Yadin used, some of the recording methods that Yadin used continue to be in use today in the excavations today. So it's really an amazing site with a very long history of uh, Israeli archaeologists. And it was, it was one of those incredible sites, too, that... Uh, I mean, it really illuminated the the Middle Bronze Age, uh, well, and, and the Iron Age, and so that, I think that's one of the greatest contributions is that for the time period back in the 1950s when the excavation started, I mean, the the field of archaeology was still in its infancy, and here comes this massive, wide scale excavation with the newest technology, newest techniques, shall we say, and it really transformed our understanding and and set the tone for for even the discussions we have about certain issues today, for better or worse, perhaps. I was going to say that I've always made the comparison that uh, archaeology in Israel is kind of like what baseball used to be in the United States, that it's it's the, the main pastime. Uh, and that is not just that people are um, doing it, that they're excavating places like Hatzor and Masada and, and so on, but that there's people invested in what those finds are going to be. And it's just as you can have a, a heated contest about who is the greatest hitter in baseball of all time, uh, you can have a, a heated contest about what's the most important excavation, the most important excavator. And it's been fun to um, not only watch that from a distance as an American, but having spent time in Israel doing my PhD and continuing to spend time as an excavator, uh, see that tradition continue and morph in really fun and exciting ways. And of course, the, the amazing finds by the amazing teams that have excavated Hot Sore are, are just really incredible to, to visit and see. Well, Shlomi, let's turn to your book now. And my first question for you is, again, I, I thought this book was fantastic. So I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> a big fan of, of the research... Yeah, and I'm not trying to just boost your book sales, by the way. I really actually, I, I find that the research questions were really, really good, and I think your approach was excellent. And it, it really touches on, I think, bigger issues that, again, we face not only with this transition period, but the transition from the late bronze to the Iron One, transition from the Iron One to the Iron Two A, and it's, it sets, uh, I think, a helpful precedent for ways of which we can evaluate some of these bigger historical questions. So, my, you know, what we want to start with is what were your your kind of two driving um, research questions in your book that you wanted to address? So, first of all, I wanted to see 
when we are able to pinpoint the changes in the material uh, culture between the Middle Bronze Age and the Late Bronze Age. And the reason for that is, first of all, there is a huge chronological debate about the Middle Bronze Age and when this transition happened based on carbon-14, based on pottery, uh, based on finds from uh, other sites around the Levant. Um, so I wanted to see if we can pinpoint uh, these changes because in addition to this huge debate, we also see a continuity um, between, uh, especially pottery and ceramic assemblages between the Middle Bronze Age and Late Bronze Age. There has been many times that I've seen pottery uh, that was collected in surveys. And when I look at this pottery and I'm asked, what is the spirit? I say, mm, it's um, Middle Bronze, Late Bronze, something, over, something in this uh, period, because there are many types that continue from one period to another. And if you only have bowls, for example, it's really difficult to identify the changes. So I wanted to look at the entire assemblage of Middle Bronze and Late Bronze Age pottery and architecture and to see if we can pinpoint this change and if the change in architecture fits to the change in the pottery. So this was the first question. The second question that I wanted to understand is what led to these changes. We have two main um, political events or historical events that occur in the middle of the second millennium. One is the expulsion of the Hyksos from Egypt, which is um, the uh, the event that led to the dating of uh, the dating as we know of the Middle Bronze Age and the Late Bronze Age. So the transition from the Middle Bronze to the Late Bronze is with the expulsion of the Hyksos. And the other event is the conquest of the Southern Levant by um, uh, Trutmus III in the beginning of the 15th century BC. Great. Well, and, and these, again, you know, just to provide even a little bit more more background with, with the whole Middle Bronze, Late Bronze transition, I mean, we're going back, you know, again, just for the, the listeners who I think are, are familiar and will will hear the same echoes that we always talk about on this podcast is that you know, we've we've created these heuristic devices to try and make sense of all the data that's there. And in this instance, Albright basically single-handedly was assigned the, the, the task of creating the, the terminology that was used. But this terminology has been not uniform in any way, um, f even from his time, because the question you know, is, well, does the Middle Bronze Age, uh, should we call it a Middle Bronze 1, 2, 3? Should we call it a Middle Bronze 2A, 2B, 2C, which then implies that the Middle Bronze 1s were actually part of the Early Bronze Age. I mean, there's whole levels of, in, of, of conflict or of challenges of trying to figure out the terminology here. And you, you have a really good discussion of, of the history of this in the book to try and make sense of it, because even today, there's still no agreed upon terminology. Some some scholars will prefer a Middle Bronze 1, 2, three some will say it's middle bronze 2a 2b 2c which then at the end of those it turns into a late bronze age and the question is well why adopt one terminology over the other what's well, based on how you see the continuity of the material culture Do, are there greater parallels with what comes before or are there greater parallels with what comes after and this is why again i think your detailed analysis is is helpful because you know spoiler alert you basically show that the middle bronze age doesn't end uh, when the the terminology says it should end, at least according to Albright. Exactly. And um, thanks for also mentioning Albright, because one of the things that I wanted to examine within my work is um, was uh, if Albright was um, somehow um, subjective to making the chronological uh, scheme, because we know of his background being very... Um, very uh, conservative, let's say it this way. Um, and I thought uh, I can uh, find from his correspondence what was standing behind uh, the division, the chronological division that he made. So I went to the American, uh, the Library of American F uh, Philosophers, I think it, that's what it's called, in, um, in Philadelphia. Um, and I read his correspondence and I actually couldn't really find something to say what was the, if there was a political background uh, to this um, uh, division, unfortunately, but I think there was. 
Well, so then what we see, so um, thinking about your your data and what you're using then to answer these questions, what are what are we looking at here? Were you able, so Hatsor, we've already mentioned, is going to feature prominently in in your discussion, not only because you've worked there, but because of the availability of the material. We have this huge corpus of material from the Middle Bronze and the Late Bronze Age from Hatsor, and it's a, it's a continuous sequence, which is always important, I think, when we're trying to parcel out these these transition-type questions. So what other uh, sites, though, did you did you draw upon? Exactly. So um, like you said, Chatzor was a major site, and not just because I worked there, but because the publication of the site is so extensive. And it's there are just so many volumes of publication, and it's up to date with the excavations as well. The other sites that I looked at, I actually examined all of the sites that have Middle and Late Bronze Age um, architecture and pottery, but since pottery is not always published, um, I was only able to find four other sites that have both pottery and architecture, So, and these were my main focus. Um, so it was uh, Tel Kashish, Tel Yokneam, Bechean, and Tel Arka in Lebanon on the Lebanese coast. Good. Well, and that's, you know, you may, we might think that's a limited data set, but that's still pretty, pretty good. And these sites have also uh, produced a good amount of material. And I think, too, you, you draw out a really important point is not only are we looking at the transition of the material culture itself, such as the pottery, but the architecture as well. And this is a, an area, I think, where you have a great contribution because you systematically look at the transition of the architecture as well and say, how does this actually, you know, not, it's one thing to kind of generally speak of mapping the archaeological materials to the political events, but, but what, what types of archaeological materials are you trying to map on there? Is it the pottery? Is it the architecture? Is it something else? And you, you show that actually sometimes they correspond as, as they do with this transition, but they don't always necessarily because some of the sites are a bit of outliers in this transitional um, phase. Exactly. Yeah, so there were um, some of the sites, it fit really well, and I was very happy with those. Uh, but some of the sites, either the pottery changed before or the architecture changed before. So it wasn't always very, very clear. And in my book, I also made a map to show which sites, um, wh when uh, the transition happens at the end of the Middle Bronze Age, when it happens at the end of the LB1A, so after... Trutmes uh, III's uh, campaign, and when it, we weren't even able to, to pinpoint a change. Yeah, so that I think, so just again for the listeners, for the, the debate here is traditional uh, understanding has put the transition with the expulsion of the Hyksos in the 16th century. However, and then following that, you see a period of potential destructions, which was always viewed as this connected to the Hyksos expulsion and initial Egyptian expansion into the Southern Levant. That framework, however, has been questioned uh, in, in more recent times, but it still remains. Well, what impact then did Thutmose III have slightly later? Uh, we're you know, looking maybe 75 years or so later, depending on the chronology that's adopted. And you know, the, how do you tie everything together? And so what are some of the changes that you actually see at Hatsor? Let's start with the archeology, span uh, sorry, the, the architecture. What do you see in the, in Hatsor and when does that transition actually take place? Is it when we have the traditional middle bronze to L, let's say middle bronze 2C to LB1A, or is it later than that? Yeah, so at Chatzot, it's very, very clear. Um, this change occurs later. So it occurs um, between the LB1A and the LB1B. Um, that's how we see it, uh, this uh, periodization. So we see a complete change of the plan of the city, the urban plan of the city, um, at the end of what we call stratum 3, or, or sorry, stratum 2, or stratum 15 of the Acropolis, which is dated to the LB1. Um, and so we see, for example, in one of the areas, there is a temple, a double temple in the Middle Bronze Age. This double temple becomes a square temple in the uh, LB1. And then in the LB2, it completely changes its nature. And this area becomes more, it has more of a residential um, nature to it. 
Um, we see other changes, for example, in area M on the Acropolis, the area um, of the, the entrance to the Acropolis from the lower city. Uh, in the Middle Bronze Age, you see a pathway leading from the lower city to the Acropolis. And in the Late Bronze Age, what we see is that the administrative palace is built exactly on top of this entrance. So now somebody entering the city can just doesn't have a direct um, um, uh, direct uh, con um, entrance or a direct, um, I'm sorry, it's my pregnancy brain. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, direct direct um, access maybe access thank you yes you direct access uh, to the Acropolis but they have to go through uh, several stops in order to finally enter be able to enter the Acropolis they have to give some kind of uh, taxes when they enter and then they go through this other big courtyard and then they go up these large stairs and in each um, place they have to make a stop and do some kind of ceremony or something like this. So I, I would just, uh, to comment on the points here that are being made and, and to kind of like take a step back and also think about the historical background of Hatsor, uh, I find it, like in this case, it's really interesting because we're kind of talking about two related streams of information. One is strictly the material culture that we see in the big picture of, of Southern Canaan. And I know Hatsor is right on the border between whether it's Northern Canaan or Southern Canaan. Uh, and then this big transition that does happen, uh, maybe in stages between what we call the Middle Bronze and Late Bronze. But you also have this in, at Hatsor where it's not like we're just digging, the, you're just digging this site and you don't know who the rulers were. And almost in every century, you have evidence of who was there. For instance, you mentioned uh, we have Tutmos III uh, mentioning it in his great city list at, at, at Karnak. We have Amarna letters from, from the 14th century. And we, we even though we don't necessarily know all the names of every ruler, we know that they were seemingly all Canaanites uh, from the Middle Bronze to the Late Bronze. And so what you're, you're really talking about is looking at this site as the key site maybe for the entire region and trying to use the the work that you're doing here to say something about the site, but also much bigger for the entire region and how that uh, transitions from the middle brain, middle bronze to late bronze age. Would you say that's a right way of, of um, arguing the main point of your book? Um, yeah, I would say that Chatzor, um, what happens in Chatzor does uh, reflect or could reflect what happens in the rest of the country. Um, but it's not always necessary uh, the case because Chatzol was such a big site, such um, a large urban center. Um, what happens in this urban center is not necessarily what we will see happening in small rural villages, for example, like uh, Kashish and Diokneam. So in a, in a way, Chatzol may uh, reflect what we see in other large centers, but still, when we look um, at what happens, uh, for example, I examined also uh, Kami de Loz, which is a very large site um, to the north of of uh, Chato. Um, it's not, it's not, um, um, it's not uh, entirely clear that it's the same thing. It could, but we need much, a lot more information from the different sites in order to say that what happens in Chatzor also happens at other sites. I hope I understood your, your question correctly. Yeah, no, you know, you did. I, I think what's really interesting is that when we start from like going back to Albright and you see that it's a theory based upon the historical text that existed at the time, their their general feel of how those historical texts fit in with the smaller amount of material culture they had anywhere from 70 to 100 years ago. And then now we're talking about much, much, much more material culture that exists at key sites. Um, and of course, we're greedy as archaeologists. We always want more, more pottery, more architecture, more points of comparison. But I, I think it's it's very uh, applicable, very uh, responsible to go back to these these bigger questions and not assume that 
uh, middle bronze, late bronze, all these divisions that have been made in the past have to be um, set in stone. Yeah, exactly. And this is what uh, Kyle was also saying in the beginning, that we we made, uh, we, like scholars, made these divisions, these uh, chronological divisions. And just like they were made before, they can be changed now. Um, but I have to say that I don't think that we should change it, because if we change it now, then it will be such a huge confusion. Confusion. I mean, like I said, we're already confused when somebody says MB1. Do they mean the, the Intermediate Bronze Age? Do they mean MB2A? What do they really mean when they say it? So to now make like the LB1A be part of the Middle Bronze Age, I think it would just be um, very, very confusing. So I think it will make our archaeologists' lives easier to just leave it like that. But know in the back of our minds that the LB1A is a period of uh, transition and it's still the same uh, material horizon as the Middle Bronze Age. Yeah. Well, that brings me to my next question then is, is what do you see with the pottery then as well? So you see this in the architecture that there's a transition, particularly at Hatsor and some of these other sites as well not between the middle bronze and the LB1, but actually between the LB1A and 1B, or perhaps LB1 and 2, if there's you know not as many strata uh, at, at a given site. But do you, what do you see then with the transition in pottery? Is it roughly at the same time period as the change in the architecture? Is it different? I mean, are we looking at different processes taking place here? So in some sites, it is, uh, it's the same. At Hatzol, for example, it was the same. Uh, but at other sites, it's not clear if it's the, uh, if the uh, changes are in the same um, pace as the changes in the in the architecture. But the change that I see everywhere, um, if I just look at the Middle Bronze and Late Bronze Age material from all of the sites together, what I see is that after the LB one, so in the LB two, if I if um, we had uh, numerous types of bowls in the Middle Bronze Age, in the LB1, in the LB2, we would have only two, for example. Um, cooking pots. Um, in the Middle Bronze Age, we have at least three different types of cooking pots. In the LB2, you have just one. Um, so all of these uh, different families of pottery condense to uh, very, very few types. So the variety in pottery types is uh, diminished. And what my conclusion from that was that there is some kind of, um, I don't want to say standard standardization because I that's a very technical term that I'm not sure that we can use in this case, but there is some kind of, um, we can say um, safely that there is less variety. So there is less variety in the types of vessels. And it, Again, I used here um, what I called macro typology and not uh, regular typology or uh, what is very used today, the micro typology. Um, so, you know, when you make a pottery um, assemblage and or when you make a pottery typology, you say that uh, this is a bowl with a rim that is uh, turned out or the rim is turned in or it's a simple rim I didn't look at the rim types at all so this what I described now would be a regular type of uh, typology the macro typology would be only to look at the general shape of the vessel so I have shallow bowls I have um, deep bowls I have carinated bowls and within the carinated bowls, I have ones that have high neck and ones that have low necks. And the reason why I did that is because uh, first I, I saw uh, that when I made the regular typology for Chateau, I saw that the same rims of the bowls that appear in the Middle Bronze Age continue to appear in the Late Bronze Age as well. So you can't really say that there is any type of, that, that the changes in the rims has any uh, chronological significance. However, what I did notice is that the, um, the depth of the bowl changes between these two periods. Um, 
and also the diameter of the bowls also changes between these two periods. Um, so this is what I focused on in my study to look at the bigger picture. So not look if the if the rim is going a little bit this way or that the other way, but look at the general shape of the vessel. And I think that's such a great way to kind of step back because it allows you to bring into focus this the bigger picture actually and it's, and it's perfectly fine to create these typologies that are very specialized and i think there's there's benefit in that but we don't want to lose the forest for the trees so i think it's helpful to do it the way that you're you're talking about and look at this micro typology because there are clear patterns that show up at that level in the same way that you can trace out patterns at a micro level as well. And each one's going to allow us to say something different about the archaeology and address uh, you know, just different questions. And so for, for you, when looking at this, I know in, in the book you talk about the potters that are making this and, and different kinds of specialists. Could you tell us a little bit about what you see happening with the pottery and those are producing it and how they're connected to kind of the bigger political picture? Yeah, so um First, let me describe a little bit the pottery in the Middle Bronze and the Late Bronze. So in the Middle Bronze Age, we see that the pottery is very well made. Um, we have lots of uh, pottery that is uh, slipped and burnished. Uh, the decoration is very uh, precise. Um, I mean, the painted decoration is very precise. I don't know if you've ever burnished a vessel. Um, we talked about this before, but burnishing a vessel is a lot of work. Um, and you can only uh, put so much energy uh, into a single vessel if you know that uh, somebody is going to pay you at the end of the day. Um, so the And in addition to that, the shapes in the Middle Bronze Age are much more varied, like we said before. Um, we have vessels that are very, uh, the walls are very, very thin. Uh, the firing temperature is higher. We have this uh, metallic uh, sound to some of these vessels. So we have very um, uh, highly uh, technological made uh, pottery in the Middle Bronze Age. In the LB2, uh, this everything changes. Uh, the pottery is made much more sloppy. You see um, bowls that have a distorted rim uh, because of the way that they were uh, 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 dried and the way they were fired. Um, you see the decorations are no longer uh, slipped and burnished. Sometimes we have slip uh, pottery but never burnished and the painted decoration is also very very sloppy. So what I suggested was that in the LB2, um, the pottery is kind of like mass produced. So it's like somebody's trying to make a lot of the pottery. Um, and the other thing that I suggested was that in the Middle Bronze Age, the potters were attached to the palaces, attached to the rulers. And the rulers were the ones that were um, giving them their income. So they knew they had a secure for, um, source of uh, income, which came from uh, the palaces. Uh, but then in the late Bronze Age, in the LB2, uh, we start having imported goods and lots of different types of goods that are under um, the control of the palaces. And so, what I suggested, my theory was that at this point, the local pottery goes out of control of, uh, of the palaces and the potters become independent potters. They have workshops. The workshops might have several potters from the same uh, side, from different sides. This is not something that I can say, but uh, the workshops are no longer attached to the uh, palaces. So now they don't have time to uh, put so much effort and so much energy into making a single vessel and they have to make many vessels um, in the same amount of time that they would take to make just a single vessel. I'm glad you pointed that out about the the trade uh, being a, a key component in this in this time period and uh, maybe our listeners have, have heard of or read the book 1177 by Eric Klein which has a uh, a recent edition that it really uh, describes this worldwide trade throughout the throughout the Mediterranean. I did want to just give a, a quick uh, definition of some of the terms that we're using um, in terms of the slip. This is something that's added, uh, kind of like as a paint uh, on the outside or inside uh, of a vessel, and a, and a burnishing is 
something that's polished. So you use it with a, either a sharp stick or other type of implement to really create this hard and really beautiful uh, application to it. And as someone, because uh, when you when you excavate a site, <laughs> the differences are really really stark when you excavate a multi-period site. For for instance, I've been digging for many years at Tel Borna, which has late bronze and iron two. And a lot of the iron two is burnished. And of course, as you just said, the late bronze age pottery is not. And we affectionately call it the Canaanite crappy wear um, <laughs> because it's ugly, huge. Uh, I can't tell you how many times uh, uh, we've, you know, uh, shaked our heads at, you know, the potter who would, who could make such an ugly piece of, of, of uh, uh, a base that has huge amounts of rock in it and you're just thinking like wow and then right beside it you have these beautiful pieces from cyprus that are amazing really each one a work of art and so it's uh, it's fun to think about hot you having kind of the same picture at a at a mega city and we having the same thing at a smaller site uh, which characterizes this this region uh, as as you're indicating, but just wanted to give our, our audience some some clues of burnishing and slip. These are technical terms that that we're using, but we find them across different periods. Sorry, I wasn't listening to anything you said, Chris. I was busy burnishing a bowl right here, and it's pretty challenging. I have to say, uh, it took all my concentration. So I'm sorry. All right, so we see a transition then in in the pottery. Um, at least Hatsor is connected to changing the architecture. So then let's add another layer. So we've got, we, we've looked a bit at the archaeology. What then, you've already mentioned this, what are the political events and how then do you see these connected uh, at Hatsor and perhaps at, at some of the other sites as well? Because you mentioned obviously the Hyksos expulsion, but then the next big thing that takes place in Canaan is Thutmose III's campaign in the, the 15th century. Yeah, so this campaign... Um starts a whole new chapter in the history of the Southern Levant. Because after uh, Trutmas III conquers uh, the Southern Levant, the whole administrative system of the entire country changes. And now all of this, uh, the cities from being independent city-states are now vassal states and they have to pay tribute to the Egyptian king. Before, they didn't need to pay tribute to anybody that we know of. Um, and now they have to, um, some of their income has to go to a different entity. And this will continue until the end of the late Bronze Age. Um, so this is a major event that is not just political and affects only the, the heads of the cities, but it trickles down because now people have to pay, most probably they had to pay more taxes the regular taxes that they needed to pay their own rulers and the extra taxes that would need to be um, uh, taken to the Egyptian king. So I think that this political event, this historical event, is the major event because when you think about it logically, the expulsion of the Hyksos from Egypt uh, in the middle of the 16th century they fled from Egypt uh, to southern Canaan or to, let's say, let's call it the central Levant um, or the Levantine coast. Maybe they fled there. Um, how would this event change? I'm just like thinking out loud for a second. How would this event change the material culture in such a way that entire cities would be rebuilt? And on the other hand, you have this um, um the conquest of the entire country and possibly also new dynasties in some of the cities because we know that this is an Egyptian um, uh, behavior to take the sons of the kings and give them a re-education in Egypt and then bring them back so now they are loyal to Egypt. Um, and we also know that the Egyptians uh, made mass deportations of the local uh, population to uh, different parts um, in Egypt. So this would have a much larger um, um, influence on material culture, in my opinion, uh, than the expulsion of the Hyksos. I, I just like to comment on this as well, because I, I think you, you make such a good point about the, the Hyksos. Uh, the Hyksos, of course, are shrouded kind of in 
mystery to some extent, um, mainly because we have ancient authors even describing them, connecting with the Israelites, and even mis- mistranslating them, uh, being shepherd kings or rulers of foreign lands with a proper translation. But I, I think your point about using them as a catch-all explanation for a transition around 1550 BC, uh, and then comparing that to Thutmose III's systematic campaign, which includes hundreds of cities and lots of texts, which describe, among other things, uh, the first military campaign in world history with with battle strategy, the conquest of Megiddo against Mitanni, uh, <laughs> they're not exactly the same kind of event. And uh, and so, I mean, even if we think about Hatsor and um, and bring up the question of, you know, who conquered it with the Israelites and so on, um, and thinking about another adjacent site in the story, Jericho, that also is brought up. Like, oh, Jericho, it was destroyed by the Hyksos or the Egyptians around 1550 BC. Like, <laughs> based on what? Because we have one text that says that the Hyksos were were chased to Sharuchen in southern Canaan, and then suddenly every other Middle Bronze Age city that comes to a destruction uh, around that period somehow is connected with the Hyksos. I, I think that uh, your point is a, is a really good one, just because the disparity in the historical record between a comparison to the, what we have with the Hyksos compared to what we have with Thutmose III is there's really no comparison. Uh, they're very orders of magnitude different in terms of what we have in terms of the texts. Yes, I, I agree with that. And also we need to remember that in the beginning, some people thought that the Hyksos might be the historical uh, reflection or the historical entity of the Israelites that were expelled from or um, escaped from Egypt. So if the Hyksos were in, indeed the Israelites in uh, those people's eyes, then their expulsion would be a major event. So I think this is another reason why um, the transition from these periods was set in, uh, during this time. And I would just add one additional thing, too, because it's something we've, we've touched upon, I think, several times in the podcast of, you know, when you have changes in political events, it doesn't necessarily mean there's going to be a change in material culture. And you have a great example right here in this topic of, well, the Hyksos expulsion is one political event you don't really see a change in the material culture. Then you have the Thutmose campaign, another kind of political event with a transition in control of Canaan, and you do see it. And so it's great to create these grand narratives and grand theories, but at the same time, we have to allow for the complexity of what's actually in the material culture and look at it in a more um, nuanced way, in a more individualized way, sometimes in order to see the patterns that are, uh, that are actually there. Yeah, I completely agree. And like you said before, this book kind of gives um, a model, I guess you can say, um, to look at different periods when you also have a, a discussion on when transition happened. You can look at architecture together with pottery because these are like the bread and butter of archaeology. Um, and you can, if you use the macro typology um, and do the the architectural uh, analysis at the different sites, then you can also be able to say when major uh, material uh, changes occurred. Absolutely. And I, I just think as kind of like a, a way of thinking about it in your head, there's some interesting coincidences here if we compare the Middle and Late Bronze to uh, the Iron II overall. And uh, we also have the nice coincidence that we have an uh, uh, an imperial king who goes by who starts with T and ends with the third, uh, Tutmos the third and Tiglath-Pileser the uh, third, and it's interesting that in both periods, whether we're talking about the Middle Bronze or the earlier part of the Iron Age, you go from semi-independent city states on the one hand, or if we want to call them nation states in the earlier part of the Iron Two, to being dominated. Uh, imperially by New Kingdom Egypt, conquered by Thutmose III on the one hand around 1450 or a little bit earlier than that, and then Tiglath-Pileser III around 732, and then how over the course of the next uh, century or so, centuries in the case of the late Bronze Age, you have uh, that 
those those states in Canaan or the land of Israel, if you want to talk about in the Iron Age, being integrated in a variety of ways into that empire's uh, area of control. And so historians call this the you know the methods of imperial control. And so it's interesting to see the the, the similarities. Uh, there are of course differences. They're motivated by you know different. Uh, philosophical approaches in, in Assyria and Egypt, but just in terms of the way they're managing the land is very similar. And I think one of the points that we had that you talked about um, in our in our class we had a couple weeks ago uh, for Jerusalem University College, and if you're interested in online classes at Jerusalem University College with Kyle and Chris, uh, come in and you can have great lectures by amazing guests. Uh, one of the points you, you made there that I found really interesting is this deportation idea after the conquest of Tutmosis III and how that has a lot of similarity with what we see happening in the latter part of the Iron Age after Israel's conquered uh, the Northern Kingdom by Tiglath-Pileser III, how you have this long series of deportation and, and what might this show for, for your era in the uh, archaeological record of the diminished number of people at a place like Hatzor? Yeah, so... Um... You're right. We do have uh, records of uh, deportation, um, mainly, uh, if I'm not mistaken, they are mainly from the Shefila uh, region in the Late Bronze Age. Um, but in the region of Hatzor, we see that um, in the Late Bronze Age, the hinterland of Hatzor, the rural uh, area of Hatzor, uh, if in the Middle Bronze Age we had dozens of sites, in the Late Bronze Age we go down to zero. So there is one site that was surveyed uh, in the vicinity of Hatzor, but this is uh, a, an agricultural installation. So it's not even uh, a settlement site. Um, so the hinterland of Hatzor goes completely empty. And um, this uh, brings me back to another one of my theories in my book, is that the people, if they weren't deported, which we don't have records of, such a deportation, but they at least left on their own will. Um, and maybe some of them even moved into uh, the area of the city of Hatzor itself. And we see uh, when we look at the architecture at Hatzor during this time, that uh, if in the Middle Bronze Age and the LB1, most of the architecture in the lower city was of public nature, in the LB2, most of the architecture is of domestic nature. So maybe this is the hint that we need uh, to see uh, or to show that the people came into the the lower city itself to live there. I think this also highlights, again, if we kind of bring this full circle, the great achievement of the excavations at Hatsor and just the specialness of Hatsor because it's only at a place like like Hatsor, where you can start at topsoil and get, immediately get back to the 13th century and then all the way, go all the way down to Hatsor's beginnings in the Middle Bronze Age over a massive area. In case you don't know how big Hatsor is, it's over 200 acres. Uh, the city of David is 10. Uh, so it's a massive site and it's dedicated. This information that you're coming out with now is, is really uh, fascinating, but it's only through the hard work that you guys have put into it, as well as this amazing site that has been preserved and thankfully no one built on top of it to, to have to mess with all that later stuff uh, to be able to get to this cool Canaanite um, transition that you're talking about. Yeah, so this is one of the major advantages of the lower city of Hatzor. Um, because, like you said, after the destruction of Hatzor, sometime in the middle of the 13th century, um, the entire lower city is abandoned. And it was never, ever settled again. It's now a huge agricultural field. Um, there are cows and horses and goats, um, and they grow wheat there. Um, and... So no one ever built on top of it. And like you said, one foot under topsoil, you reach the late Bronze Age. And this is amazing. You reach walls, uh, like the top of walls, you reach floors, not much below that. And everything was preserved very, very nicely. Um, and so, and in addition to that, we need to remember that the site was destroyed in a huge conflagration um, in the LB2. Um, there is a debate whether uh, which stratum was uh, destroyed, but um, this destruction led to a very well preservation of the finds. Uh, 
in the lower city and on the Acropolis as well. But if we're talking about the closeness to the to the topsoil and that you don't have to dig too far to reach the, let's call them the goodies. <laughs> that very, very good. Very apt. I, I do have a, a, a question related to the destruction, and we're going to avoid the question of who destroyed it and how that connects to the Bible. Uh, I, I will just say that many, uh, many people who see some historicity to the biblical story would connect the final destruction of Hatsor, uh, at least in some way, to Joshua 11 and the campaign of Joshua that destroyed Hatsor, uh, the king or the, the head, I should say, of all those kingdoms, which to me personally, I think has uh, some real nice, strong echoes between the two stories. Um, but I did have one question that I, I wanted to ask is, is because it's been this question of who destroyed Hatsor has obviously been at the forefront of even the earliest excavations going back to Yadin and others. What is the the current belief about how many times Hatsor was destroyed by fire um, in it, in, in, during the late Bronze Age? Um, because I've heard others say in the past, oh, it was destroyed a couple times, three times. Um, but based upon the, the current work I've seen that's been published, it only really has a single destruction that you mentioned in maybe the mid to late uh, 13th century. Is that correct? That is 100% correct. Um, actually, just uh, recently an article was uh, published in the Journal of Archaeological Science Reports um, about the destruction of Hatzor in the gate in Area K. Uh, this is the northeastern area. Um, and they show there that they did uh, microarchaeology let's call it this way, micro-stratigraphy. Micro st uh, and they took um, almost 90 sam samples from the section of the gate, and they showed that uh, from the Middle Bronze Age to the end of the, of the use of the site or, or the gate, and they showed that throughout this entire time, there's only one uh, episode of a destruction um, of a large conflagration. So there is no destruction between the Middle Bronze Age and the Late Bronze Age. Um, Yadin says that there is a destruction level, but this is only based on an ash layer that was found in one of the rooms in a residential building in Area C, which is the area in the southwestern corner of the lower city, but nowhere else in the entire site. So I don't think that an ash layer in one, even if it was the entire building um, that was destroyed uh, by fire, just one residential building doesn't uh, reflect on the entire uh, city itself. Um, so there is no destruction between uh, the transition from the Middle Bronze to the Late Bronze. And in the Late Bronze Age, there is only one destruction. And in the article, they also show it very nicely that this destruction is uh, most probably dated to stratum 1b. So this is the middle of the 13th century. Um, and what uh, in a recent article, one of the opinions that was uh, described, which is um, also my opinion, is that following this destruction, there was a short-term occupation on the site, which is stratum 1A, which is the end of the 13th century. Which you like to call the Deborah and Barak phase, based upon what we talked about. I I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's a joke. That's a joke. Uh, yeah. So no, that's, that's fascinating. I did see that article and it, it's really interesting and great visuals uh, to see how they visualize the destruction of, of the gate. And so I just wanted to clear that up because it is something you read about all the time. And our listeners uh, definitely want to know about the early date versus late date uh, conquest and so on. And hot sore is a big part of that uh, discussion. So thank you for setting the record straight. I appreciate that. I do have one thing to say about the biblical record that I don't think that we talked about. Um, it might open a whole new area of discussion, so we probably shouldn't get too much into it. But Oh, you have to now, though. You have to. <laughs> I think that at Chatzor, we see uh, so, many, so much evidence for ruined cult. So this is uh, cultic installations that are constructed and used in relations to the ruins of the Late Bronze Age um, that 
And we have other evidence as well. Um, I wrote about it in an article regarding the orthostats at Chatzor and the changes in the use of uh, orthostats from the Bronze Age to the Iron Age. And what I um, argued in this article is that the biblical narrative is appropriating the destruction of Chatzor to the Israelites. Uh, maybe it was the forefathers of the Israelites or, or the the forefathers of, of these people came and they saw this destruction um, and they said, who else could um, make this huge destruction if not us? So I think that um, if you ask me who is, uh, or you didn't ask me who destroyed Chatzor, um, my I'm still not answering it, but my answer is that the destruction was appropriated by the Israelites, even if they're not the ones that actually um, created this huge destruction and gave us these beautiful destruction layers. Yeah, I, I think that's that's fair. And the thing I'd say about a, such a, a reconstruction is um, looking at it from a historical perspective, how would we ever be able to tell the difference? You know, that's that's always the hard part is when you start with an assumption either way, it, it becomes, but, but the, the key point is, is that there's good evidence at Hatsor was a major, major site in the uh, late Bronze Age, which seems to be reflected in the Bible. And, you know, it depends on where your starting point is to how you're going to reconstruct the evidence. Yeah, but we have uh, carbon-14 dates for the destruction, which are much earlier than the Israelites. You could say that it was proto-Israelites, these, uh, uh, like we say, these uh, unseen people that lived in the outskirts of Chatzor, and they're the ones that uh, destroyed the, the city. Um, but this isn't, this really isn't something that we can, uh, the only way that we can know who destroyed Chatzor is when we find the stila that says, I was here and I destroyed Chatzor. And my name is Yehoshua. Exactly, exactly. Well, on, on that note, you know what? I actually almost found the Middle Bronze archive at Hatsor when I was working there. Shalomi, I don't know if I ever told you this story, um, but it was no. uh, one season. I, yeah, I almost found it. I, I came back from breakfast one morning and was cleaning up my area and all of a sudden started finding these perfect tablets dozens of them in my square and my heart started racing I said, oh my goodness this is this is the moment we just discovered the archive at Hatsor and as I'm cleaning one off and holding it very gently I flip it over and I'm like I can actually read this this is incredible soap it said soap here one of my good friends have been taking soap bars from the hotel that are the same size of cuneiform tablets and decided that he would put them in my square in some some dirt while I was away at breakfast that I could discover them and so that was my that that uh, he he got some ire from that but <laughs> I I was so close I thought I I thought I almost had it <laughs> well that's a really great story <laughs> well as as we wrap up here could you tell us a little bit about the the plans for your future excavations that are coming up this summer in the lower city. Yeah, I would love to tell you about it. So um, this summer, we're going to start a new uh, excavation in the lower city of Chatzor, um, which is going to be focused on two uh, areas of excavation. Uh, one area is right next to the Orthostats Temple. Uh, this is a very large royal monumental temple uh, which was established for us in the Middle Bronze Age and continued to be in use until the end of the Late Bronze Age. Um, this is where the very famous lion orthostat was found. Um, also, this is the only place where uh, cuneiform tablets were found uh, in their original context. So we have two liver models that were found um, in, this, uh, in this temple. Uh, so we're going to uh, expand the area of excavation and hopefully find uh, some auxiliary buildings that go together with uh, this temple. Um, we don't know what to expect to find there uh, because uh, this area has only been excavated by Yadin. Uh, the other area that we're going to uh, excavate is actually um, has never been excavated before. Um, it's um, um, so Yadin opened two trial squares um, in the middle of the of the site, and in both these squares he found residential uh, remains. 
and our area is right between these two squares that he opened. So we're hoping to find a residential quarter and excavate some just domestic buildings. And then we can we will be able to compare between uh, monumental public architecture and material culture to the domestic private uh, material culture and architecture. Um, and this will lead to so many research questions that we have regarding Chatzor, um, regarding the use of the environment of the site, um, and uh, the, the differences in um, the access that people had to some of the resources in the city and outside of the city, um, changes or differences in consumption between uh, monumental uh, royal architecture and private architecture or um, people that lived in these diff different kinds of uh, um, buildings. So one, and one of the most interesting and important questions that we have is to understand who exactly lived in the lower city of Chatzol. Uh, so this is uh, something that I uh, recently talked about in a bar article that I published on um, who lived in the lower city of Chatzol. Um, because we have in the Middle Bronze Age, we have uh, at least two uh, tablets that talk about very high status people that live in Chatzol. Um, one was found in Mari and talks about uh, Babylonian messengers that lived in the lower city of Chatzor. And the other one was actually found at Chatzor itself and talks about a woman who owned uh, several assets in the city of Chatzor and the city of Gilad. And she sued uh, by three men for these assets. She luckily wins this trial, but she lived in the lower city of Chatzor. So this was a wealthy woman that had assets in the city. So we know that at least in the Middle Bronze Age, there were wealthy people that lived in the lower city. In the Late Bronze Age, uh, the picture is unclear because we have no information about this. Um, but one of the things that we hope to uh, find out during our um, during this project is to know who actually lived in the city of Chatzol. So this would be a great, um, or this is one of the main uh, biggest research questions that we have for the project. Great, thank you, Shlomit. We'll put a, we'll actually put a link up to the the excavation webpage for people that are interested in following up a bit more with with Hatzor and also with with your project. And again, uh, the we'll put a link up for your book which was published by Eisenbronze, again, Political Change and Material Culture in Middle to Late Bronze Age Canaan. So, uh, Chris, any last parting thoughts before we, we sign off here? Yeah, yeah, I, I have to. I have to. You know, we're, here we are with an imminent excavator of hot sore, um, and every other year there's a uh, article published in Bar about where this archive is. Let me just say one thing, and then I'm going to ask you, you know, the, the hot button issue, where you think it or maybe they are because I've heard you talk about maybe multiple ones. Um, and just to set the stage for this for our audience, a discovery of Hot Sores archive or archives would be extraordinary, not only because it would um, be from the um, you know from the same time period as the the Canaan era, but we have n almost no texts. Most of them come from Hot Sore. And so if, if they were to stumble upon a room filled with hundreds or, dare I say, thousands of uh, not bars of soap, uh, but <laughs> cuneiform tablets, it would be extraordinary. And of course, administrative tablets, all those would be great. But some literary texts, similar to what was found at Ugarit with the Baal cycle, the Epic of Akkad, and so on, that's really what we are all hoping for. This is uh, for bronze and Iron Age archaeologists. This is like the holy grail of what could be found at this great site. So with that set up, Shlomit, where are they? Yes, so like you said, I am convinced that there is there are several um, archives at Chatzol. Not only one dated to the Middle Bronze and one dated to the Late Bronze Age that we know exist because of the documents that already come up from uh, from topsoil or uh, in much later context, but because we see in other sites. You mentioned Ugarit. In Ugarit, we have um, archives in people's houses. 
um, merchant's houses. Maybe one of the most exciting um, document um, was found in the merchant's house about how they need help from Egypt because um, the, the enemy is like um, blowing at their necks. Uh, like we say, and um, they are dying of hunger because they have no more food. Um, and these were found in people's houses. So one of the places I'm sure that um, an archive will be found is, of course, the administrative palace of Chatzol. But I also think that we will have archives in just regular uh, domestic buildings and also probably in a royal temple. Um, even though we didn't find an archive in the royal temple with a capital the uh, on the Acropolis, which is, uh, of course, I'm talking about building 7050. Um, the other royal temple is the Orthostats temple. And I think that the reason why we didn't find an, an archive in building 7050 is because we have the administrative palace. So everything that all the administrative texts of a temple would be stored in the palace. Um, literally, lit, liter, literature text, sorry, it's difficult for me to say this word. Um, I don't know why they weren't found there, but they did find um, in the fill of this building, they did find, um, uh, we found um, another um, liver um, uh, model. Um, so it's possible that uh, some of the texts from the temple were stored in the palace. But in the lower, in, I mean, the other temple that we have in the lower city, I, I think that the archive of this temple should be stored in the temple itself. All I can say is inshallah and yella. Uh, let's, uh, I, I can't wait, I can't wait to, uh, to see it, you know, when it happens. Me too. Well, Shlomi, thank you so much for being on. This has been a lot of fun talking about all these things. Uh, we really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. It's always so much fun with both of you. So I really had a great time as well. Good. Well, uh, Biblical World listeners, thanks for tuning in. And until next time, keep on digging. You've been listening to OnScript's Biblical World podcast. If you enjoy this show, please show your support by giving us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen. You can support the show by visiting onscript.study donate. Until next time, keep digging.